Hello, and welcome to Spur Radio, featuring the best of the Spur Festival, a national festival of politics, art, and ideas. I'm Michael Booth, Director of Production for Spur and host of the Spur Radio Podcasts. This edition of Spur Radio is from the 2015-2016 series of the LRC Presents, the speaker series of the Literary Review of Canada. The LRC is Canada's national review of Canadian books, politics, and ideas, and the presenter of the Spur Festival. This episode, titled Girl Power, the Rising Economic Power of Women, features a talk and conversation with award-winning journalist and human rights activist Sally Armstrong. Sally Armstrong says, The economy is the ticket that women can ride, and that we can no longer afford to oppress half our population. She details an international realization of the vast economic and financial benefits that come with bringing women to the table. According to Armstrong, this financial recognition is being coupled by a gradual change in mindset. Today, change is being led by individuals with immense personal will, whether it is Pakistan's Malala or Kenya's Mili. Where is this change happening and who is leading it? How are they different from women's movements of the past? Who continues to stand in the way of progress? Armstrong gives us her take. Sally Armstrong is a journalist and human rights activist. She is a three-time Amnesty International Award winner and was a member of the International Women's Commission at the United Nations. She is a member of the Order of Canada and the recipient of seven honorary doctorate degrees. Armstrong has covered stories in zones of conflict across the globe, from Bosnia and Somalia to Rwanda and Afghanistan. In doing so, she has been awarded the Gold Award from the National Magazine Awards Foundation. Her most recent book is Ascent of Women, A New Age is Dawning for Every Mother's Daughter. The Literary Review of Canada's government funders include the Canada Council for the Arts, the Ontario Arts Council, the Ontario Media Development Corporation, and Canadian Heritage. The LRC is supported by numerous individual donors and subscribers dedicated to debating and discussing the big ideas that shape our country and society. Girl Power, the Rising Economic Tide of Women, was recorded live at Hart House in the University of Toronto on March 1, 2016. We hope you enjoy this edition of Spur Radio. Hello, my name is Helen Walsh and I'm the publisher of the Literary Review of Canada. Political enfranchisement came episodically to women in Canada. 2016 marks the 100th anniversary of the very first political rights, that of women in Manitoba to elect their provincial leaders. Two years later, the federal vote was extended to women, uh, unless you were Indigenous, of course, and that did not happen to 1960. As we stand here a week away from International Women's Day, uh, Sally Armstrong will talk to us about the rising economic position of women in the world and the significance uh, for all of us. For those of you who are new to the LRC, a little background. For 25 years, the LRC has been publishing original essays and long-form book reviews on issues of importance to Canada. A very big thank you, of course, to our funders who make all of our programming possible. Now on to this evening. It's my great pleasure to introduce Sally Armstrong. Please give her a very warm welcome. Thank you. This is a very prestigious event, and uh, as much as I've been um, shouting for the the status of women for most of my career, I can't tell you how pleased I am to shout about it in your very prestigious company, so thank you for inviting me. I am a journalist, I work in zones of conflict, and my beat is to find out what happens to women and girls. I've been on the case for 25 years, and I can tell you I haven't had a good news story to tell. I broke the story about the gang raping of women in the Balkans. I broke the story about what the Taliban did to the women in Afghanistan. These are not exactly hallmark cards of joy. But you know, about five years ago now, I started to feel like the earth was shifting under the status of women and girls. And at first I thought maybe it was wishful thinking on my part, because after all, you know, as a journalist, you haven't had a good news story to tell in a long time. You're kind of on the lookout for one. I did the research. I found out I was right. And I wanted to be the first one to say, this is really honest to God happening. And that's why I wrote Ascent of Women, because a new age is dawning, and it's dawning for every mother's daughter. It's happening all over the world. It's happening in Kabul. I just got back three days ago from Afghanistan on assignment. It's happening in Cairo. It's happening in Nairobi. It's happening in New York. It's happening here. There is a change, and I measured that change in the research that I did for the book. And and what the experts say is that women are propelling changes so immense that they're going to affect the most intractable files we've ever had. Poverty, conflict, uh, violence. They're even going to bring a true accounting to culture and religion. And better still, the power brokers are listening. 
That was the basis of the research that I set out to do when I wrote this book. This new wave is based on the notion that the world can no longer afford to oppress half of the world's population. It was economist Jeffrey Sachs who said, the status of women and the economy are directly related. Where one's flourishing, so is the other. Where one's in the ditch, so is the other. Well, the people sitting here today have known that for decades. Well, some of you may be only half a decade, but still, we've known that. But when people like Jeffrey Sachs says it, it starts getting traction. And that's what's happening today. And it, in, interestingly, because today is Super Tuesday, um, when I was doing the research for this book, it was Hillary Clinton who had done probably the most speaking, maybe not the most, but no one has spoken more than Hillary Clinton had about the status of women around the world. And you know, she says something very interesting. She said there's 39 civil wars going on in the world today. 31 of them are old wars. They keep restarting, and the reason they restart is they end with ceasefires of exhaustion rather than ceasefires that, that deals with what was wrong in the first place. I said to Hillary Clinton, so what's wrong in the first place? She said the same three things are wrong in every civil war. Poverty, lack of education, and the oppression of women. Nobody spoke this way before. You never heard someone in a position of authority naming what most of us knew to be true. So now, at last, it seems to be the time for women. So when I was writing the book, people kept saying to me, are you crazy? How can you be so positive? I mean, don't you read the paper? Look what's happening. Well, let's talk about Malala Yousafzai. You remember, 15 years old, living in the Swat Valley in Pakistan. She decided she wanted to go to school. Why? Because she'd like to learn to read and write and think for herself rather than being told what to think by some illiterate mullah who's making it up as he goes along. And Malala was told, don't you go to school? The Taliban told her that. She went to school and what did they do? These cowardly thugs, they shot a 15-year-old girl in the head because she wanted to go to school. But I can tell you that that story goes on a lot. It always has, and even today, it still does. But five years ago, we would never have heard this story. Over there, they would have said, it's a girl. And if we heard it, we'd whisper behind our hands to our friends, and we'd say, oh, you know, the way they treat their women is pretty appalling, but there's nothing we can do about it. Malala's story went into the stratosphere. Remember, she was moved to Islamabad for treatment. She was in the paper again. Remember, the Globe and Mail did a one-third page diagram of the cranial surgery they were going to do on this child once they moved her to England. I thought, this is dazzling. And then, in fact, and, and we heard all about the cochlear implant and how they're going to put it in. We never heard this before. Girls' stories played on page 38 in the days when newspapers had 38 pages. But they, we never made the front page. Malala never left the front page. I remember the day she got out of the hospital. I was in Victoria, and CTV called me, and they said, hurry up, hurry up, get to our studio. We need a news hit. Malala just got out of the hospital. Five days later, she was going back to school with her little pink backpack slung upon her back. What happened was Malala had become the world's daughter. Everybody knows her. The little kids know her. You and I know her. Everybody knows her. It's as though we lifted a curtain and said, what the heck were we thinking? Of course the girls have to go to school. And right on the heels of that, I was assigned another story about Boko Haram and what they did to those kids in, in Shibok in northern Nigeria. And you know, we wrote about the details and, and we told the story, but no one seemed to zero in on something historic happened with that event. When Barack Obama announced that he was sending surveillance equipment and strategic advisors to Nigeria, he made history. Now, so did UK, so did, I think it was Russia, Israel, UK, Canada, and US, strange bedfellows. But that's who went in there. And what I can tell you is in history, no military, no government has ever gone anywhere to rescue girls. This was a major announcement and the message was clear. Girls count and education is paramount. But I can tell you the kidnapping of girls is nothing new either. It's, it even goes on today. What is new is, is that people are taking action. So suddenly, rescuing more than 200 girls from the evil clutches of a religious crackpot is getting as much attention as Putin was getting at the time. And, and it was as though, like a gathering storm, civil society and government leaders were blown onto the stage, the dramatic stage of adolescent girls. And the thugs, like Boko Haram, were claiming it was none of our business. 
that this was cultural. And the, the, the whole world began to say for, I think, the first time, this isn't cultural, this is criminal, and it is my business. You know, I want to tell you a little sidebar about that case. When I did this story, I interviewed one of the girls who'd escaped. She's 14 years old. She escaped by jumping off the back of the truck. Can you imagine? She rolled herself into the, into the forest, and she tried to bury herself in the debris in the forest so they wouldn't see her, but they knew she jumped. They stopped the truck, and they went in the forest with long poles trying to find her, and thank God they didn't find her. My question to her was where did you get the nerve to jump off the back of a fast-moving truck? She didn't skip a beat. She said, I figured you can only die once. If I stayed on the truck, I'd die, so I jumped. Now, the, the, the key here, in my opinion, these girls had been in school. These girls had plans for themselves. These girls had big plans for themselves. They were going to go to university. They were even going to go to other countries to study. They were going to come back and fix what was wrong with Shabak. I think when you have that opportunity to go to school, as most of us know when we work in these areas, education is everything. This kid had so many plans for herself. She jumped off the back of a truck. Well, this is a new page in history. I mean, we're seeing that the absurd notion that, that culture and religion are sacrosanct are collapsing. And, and given the rapidly changing status of women and girls in the world today, I think an optimist could suggest, really, that this age-old oppression is now seen as damaging to the economy and indeed to the health of the community. And the opposite, emancipation, is seen as the prescription for prosperity. I believe that's where we are today. I wanted to share with you also how I did the research to find out why this was happening now. Why was the earth shifting under the status of women? And it was shifting so fast I could hardly keep up with it. So I looked at, uh, well, I looked all as back as far as I could go. Neanderthal men did not oppress Neanderthal women, by the way. He needed her making babies to get in those fields and plant. What I did find was that the women's movement, as you and I knew it, was very much a Western movement. We knew that to be true. It was a movement in North America and UK and, and Europe and so on. It was not very much embraced by women in Asia and Africa. But two things happened in the 90s that changed that. One I called deception, the other one I called disease. So let's look at deception. With the rise of Islamism in the 90s, women in Asia began to realize they had become the targets of the extremists in their own religion. They knew they had to form groups. They knew they had to fight back, and they did. They formed some extraordinary groups. One of the biggest is called Women Living Under Muslim Laws, and these women are incredible. You can Google them. I mean, they're, they're outspoken, they're articulate, they're accurate, they're not afraid of the boogeyman. They take on every subject that needs to be taken on, and they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger every single year, and they work as a network. They began networking women together in Asia. They are the juggernaut, really, for women in Asia and indeed for Africa. But in Africa, which I, I call the disease factor of the change, was we know that the HIV AIDS pandemic was taking on the face of a woman. We understood that from the research that had been done. And the women I interviewed in Africa, who I've been interviewing for many years in Africa, said to me, we have no right to say no to sex. If we don't organize, if we don't form a group and take on the impunity of men when it comes to sex, we'll all be dead. So they started forming groups, and I thought, is that what happened? Is that why the earth shifted? Now you've got Western women and Asian women and African women, it, but that wasn't why. I looked at several areas. I kept trying to find, you know, with the information-based society, we started seeing a woman's style of management coming into the mainstream. We started seeing networks rather than hierarchies and shared leadership rather than top-down management. I thought maybe that was it, but that wasn't it. Do you know what caused the earth to shift under the status of women? Facebook. That's what did it. It was the first time in history women in the north, the south, and the east, and the west began to speak to each other, and what a conversation they had. Women wearing hijab found out that despite what the fundamentalists said, women wearing jeans were not whores after all. And women wearing jeans found out that despite what people had suggested to them, women wearing hijab had a lot of very important opinions that had to come to the table. Together, the women learned that the opportunistic men with the impunity and the power, we're holding them all back. We're making the future bleak. We're hurting their children. So now, together, they become a force so powerful that everyone from presidents to pollsters see women as the way forward, the way to reduce poverty, to cut conflict, and to improve the economy. Who can argue with that? But this is a change centuries of women have worked toward. And there's this new cohort of savvy young change makers that are activating this stage. They represent millions of women who've been trapped 
in religious dogma and suffering from cultural contradictions, and until very recently, they've been bullied into silence by extremists. I can give you an example. I started covering Afghanistan as soon as the, well, not as soon as the Taliban took over. They took over September the 26th, 1996. I tried to get in. I didn't manage to get in until March, so it was a few months after them. But I was the Taliban's worst nightmare. In fact, they made a list once of people should, who should be eliminated. I was number 11 on the list. But unlike <laughs> the more famous people like George W. Bush, they didn't use my name. They called me the big woman from Canada with the yellow hair. <laughs> That's one of my best monikers. But I was their nightmare. They kept saying to me, you have no business writing about our women. You're not from here. You're not in our culture. You're not in our religion. How dare you? And I said as politely as I could, you know what? What's happening to your women is not cultural. It's criminal. Of course I'm going to write about it. But in those days, not everybody felt the same way. In fact, there's a couple of people who don't agree with me. I can't resist quoting one is, you've probably heard of him, he's an academic from Saudi Arabia, and in these hallowed halls, I'm sure many of you are academics, I don't mean to be insulting, but it's true that academics get away with saying things sometimes that they don't have to support. He's one, his name's Kamal Subi. You've heard that in the kingdom, Saudi Arabia, women would like the right to drive a car. Well, my God, they're not allowed to do that. So he went to the legislative assembly when it looked like the women might get the right to drive a car, and he stood up in the legislative assembly, and he said, allowing a woman to drive a car will spell the end of virginity in the kingdom. It was just accepted, but you know what? Not long after he was in Canada, I don't know who invited him, it wasn't me, but he was in Canada, and not only that, he was on RCBC, <laughs> and I was driving my car, and my friend Maggie was sitting in the front seat with me. I don't know if it was Anna Maria Tremonti who it was who was interviewing him, and he said, what people don't understand is when a woman drives a car, she stops ovulating. And my friend Maggie said, God, I wish I'd known that. <laughs> Not to be outdone, we have our own crackpots on this side of the water, and I'm thinking, of course, of the redoubtable Reverend Pat Robertson, who said, the feminist agenda is not about equal rights for women. It is about a socialist, anti-family, political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. So there. You know, no wonder the young women I'm interviewing, and I interviewed some of them in, in Kabul last week, no wonder they're starting to sneer at old men with old customs. Women who never dared to speak up before are now denouncing bogus religious claims and things that have damaged them for centuries. They're saying, they're holding up the holy books and saying, where is it written I can't go to school? Well, it's not. Where is it written my mother can't go to work? Well, that's not there either. And you know... It's never a really good idea to lie to women, I have to tell you. In fact, I dare say the worst day in the lives of extremists and fundamentalists and misogynists was the day the women in the world, all over the world, began to speak to each other. That's not to say we're at the finish line, not here. I mean, if the 1,200 to 1,400, and now they say how many more thousand missing Aboriginal women, Indigenous women, uh, were men, we would have had an inquiry a long time ago. If, if the polygamous cult in, in British Columbia got the attention it deserves, can you imagine the man who runs that cult, and I've done stories on them and been there, he has 25 wives. He keeps an ovulation chart on the wall to know who to sleep with which night. He's got 100 and, I forget now, is it 812 children, that he gets a tax receipt for every child. Why the hell is this guy still in business? We've done everything. We've brought in attorneys general. We've had judges. We've, he's still in business. So we're not at the finish line here either. But there is plenty of evidence today to say that women and girls are making moves that they never made before. You know, a few years ago, I was in Afghanistan doing a story on Young Women for Change for CBC Radio Ideas. These kids are incredible. Kids are so nervy, right? It's probably because they haven't heard everybody say, you can't do that, or we already tried that, or that'll never work. They, don't, they don't, haven't got that part yet. So these kids were telling me 67% of the population of Afghanistan is under the age of 30. That's pretty serious. And they said, we never started a war. We never fought a war. We hate these old customs that hurt people. We want change. And here's the kicker. They said, we have the tools to make change. We're all on Facebook. And they do, and they're, they're, they were doing these incredible things, but you know in Afghanistan, if you so much whisper the word change, the fundamentals go berserk. They say right away, you're trying to westernize Afghanistan, as if. Anyway, 
I said to the girls, what do you say to these guys when they accuse you of trying to westernize Afghanistan? Just like the 14-year-old who jumped off the truck in Nigeria, they didn't skip a beat. They said, we speak right back to them. We say, you think human rights are Western? You think girls' education is Western? You think treating people decently is Western? If that's Western, what's Eastern? I mean, they're nervy. They're nervy to the max. But that's how you get things done, and that's how young people are. And I believe they're playing an enormous role in making the changes we're hoping for so much today. Now, as I mentioned, I was in Afghanistan till a few days ago, and I, I was doing a story for McLean, so I can't <laughs> bust my embargo. But things have gone definitely very, very sideways in Afghanistan. I'm terribly sad to report. Well, the Taliban have taken over 25% of Afghanistan. ISIS has a foothold. Transparency International has just announced that Afghanistan is the third most corrupt country in the world behind Somalia and North Korea. However, having said all of that, and the details are in my story that's in McLean's, I also toured around to see what the girls were up to. That's my beat, and that's what I love to do. So who do I meet? A young girl, she's 19 years old, and she's the first woman conductor of an all-women symphony orchestra in the middle of downtown Kabul. Is this not the, the capital of women's oppression in the world? She's incredible. She, I said she's 19. She lives in an orphanage. She's not an orphan, but there's no school where she lives, so her father sent her into Kabul to live at this orphanage so she'd get an education. But she thinks she's won the life lottery because she got picked to go to this Afghanistan National Institute of Music. So I went with her because they were performing last Wednesday night and they're having a dress rehearsal. So I went over and I met these kids. They're almost all street kids or orphans. I mean, it was amazing. They're playing pretty nice music. I mean, you know, the Toronto Symphony are safe, but they were doing pretty well. One kid has smudgy stuff on her face because she hasn't cleaned up. Another one still has the bag. She sells plastic bags on the street, and they're hanging out her back pocket. Another one is blowing bubble gum while she's banging away on the drum. I think there's another word, but she was the drummer of the orchestra. They were such kids. They were such tomorrow. They were, to me, they were the blueprint of what has to happen everywhere in the world. They haven't had time to really concentrate on the Taliban, but you know, last year when they did their concert, the Taliban sent a suicide bomber to attack them. They called the, the man who started their organization, they called him the man who corrupts our nation. Uh, they called their music a barbaric act. These kids are writing a new score for Afghanistan. It, to me, it was like watching flowers bloom. So as much as the Taliban were doing their worst, and the good news about ISIS is, is Taliban and ISIS hate each other, so they're fighting each other. But here were these young people, and I ran into another collection of kids, young girls who've decided to take up extreme sports. I don't know if sitting here we can understand how much nerve it takes to do that in a country that thinks girls shouldn't even leave the house. They're doing paragliding. They're doing extreme cycling, and they... I went up to a mountain with them, and they're racing down the mountain with victory in their eyes and no care for the rocks in front of them. I was dazzled, and I thought, you want to fight the Taliban? And 67% of the countries under the age of 30, these kids aren't going back. They're not going to change, but there are troubles in the country. But what I wanted to share with you, really, is that my research showed something quite new that we... Well, it's not that new, but we haven't talked about this before. You know how we always depend on political will and public will to get things done? The stroke of the politician's pen makes a change, or the demonstration, the, the petition that the public does um, pushes the politician to make the change. What I found in my research is there's a very powerful new role that's being played not by public or political will, but personal will is the new guy on the stage. Malala is a perfect example of, of personal will. She didn't go to school because a politician in the Swat Valley uh, stroked uh, his pen across the page to say, girls will now go to school. That didn't happen. She didn't go to school because the public in Pakistan had a demonstration to say, girls have to go to school. That didn't happen. She went to school because she wanted to go to school. They shot her. She got better. She went back to school, and she started a movement. It was personal will that drove Malala Yousafzai to do what she did. You know, there's another story I want to share with you. It's, it's the biggest story I want to share with you tonight. It's a story of 160 little girls in Kenya between the age of 3 and 17 who sued their government for failing to protect them from being raped. I, I will get to that story, but first I want to tell you how it started. There was no political or public will 
to stop the raping of girls in Kenya. And, and there are laws on the books in Kenya that call, they call it defilement. We always find these polite words that defilement is a crime. But the problem is the men have impunity. No one's arrested. Nobody goes to jail. So this case that has now become world famous, really, it started because in a little village near the, the city of Meru, which is four hours north of Nairobi, they were having a meeting about getting a school. And a little kid called Millie, 12 years old, Millie, stood up at that meeting and she said, I want to go to school, but I can't go to school because I'm pregnant. And I'm pregnant because that man sitting over there raped me. This is unheard of. This is personal will. It was the personal will of that girl that started a case that made history. Because you see, political will sometimes lags behind Public will will surge ahead or it will retreat. But what salvages both of them is the person who stands up and says, this is what I want. That electrifies the public and the political. You know, there's great precedent-setting cases. One of the best is here in Canada. And remember the story, some of you might not have been around what happened, the story of the balcony rapist. For those of you who, who weren't reading the newspaper then, there was a rapist going around a certain neighborhood in Toronto, and he was getting access to girls' apartments through their balcony, and he was raping them. And the police figured out his modus operandi. And instead of warning the girls, they used them as bait. So the last girl he raped, she's known as Jane Doe, and, and she said to them, you had no right using me to do your job. You wrecked my life. And she sued them. And she sued them for failing to protect her. And this is the first country that ever did that. She won. And, and as I will explain later, that case was ultimately used in, in Kenya. Because when you look at this as binary, the political and the public, it needs to be pushed by the personal. The individual who says, this is what I want. This is important to me. And we're seeing a lot of that today, at least I am, in the work I do, reporting on what's happening to women and girls. Equality law and gender advocacy depend on these individuals. Social media gives us such easy access to their stories, and that inspires people. It lets us relate to all the details. You know, when we have to report things, we tend to be a bit dry about it, and lawyers, heaven forbid, are even drier than that. But you put something on Facebook or Twitter, and you get the personal account, you get the heart and soul of the story. Sometimes it isn't accurate, but that's what's happening. But it does provide momentum, and, and it makes a more powerful case for the public to sweep the issue toward political will. In my research, I find that it's personal will that is the leading game changer today when it comes to gender advocacy. Now, let me tell you the story of Millie's case. Um, as I said, it was 160 girls between the age of 3 and 17. It happened in Meru in Kenya. And their legal action, in fact, was crafted in Canada because the human rights lawyers in Nairobi contacted the human rights lawyers in Canada who'd done the balcony rapist case. They said, how did you do that? And being Canadians, they said, this is how we did it. And if you want us to help you, we'll come right over. And they did. When they started to look at the case, people started to talk, particularly people in the, in the, the world of judges and magistrates. And they said, if those girls win... This would set a precedent that will alter the status of women in all of Kenya, maybe all of Africa. The, the suit was the brainchild of a Toronto woman called Fiona Sampson. She's the project director of the Equality Effect, and that's a non-government organization that uses international human rights law to improve the lives of girls and women. She went over there to meet the woman who was running the shelter where these girls stay. This woman is called Mercy Chitty. She is the Erin Brockovich of Africa, I promise you. I, I followed this case for three years. Nothing stops this woman. But together, Fiona Sampson and Mercy Chitty realized that it was time to tackle the root of the problem, which was the impunity of the rapists and the failure of the justice system to ever convict them. As I said, Kenya has rules on its books, but they are not obeyed. They're not used. So the lawyers filed a case that said the state is responsible for the police and the way police enforce existing laws. Since the police in Kenya failed to arrest the perpetrators and fail on an ongoing basis to provide the protection the girls need, we are filing notice that the state is responsible for the breakdown in the system. Well, I left them bivouacked in a hotel room in Nairobi to do their work, and I got in a truck 
and drove four hours north to Meru. I wanted to meet the girls. I'm sure many of you have been to Africa, and you know Africa pulls on all of your senses. You, you can't come out of Africa untouched. We drove through banana farms and tea plantations, and we went past those lovely dark umbrella-like acacia trees, and we inhaled the dry scent of the savannah and saw bleating goats and a bazillion signs that say Jesus saves. We saw mango trees and roadsides drenched in pink and orange and red bougainvillea, smacked up against fluorescent green billboards advertising safari.com, which is a local cell phone provider. Everything in Africa seems to me to be old and new, bumping into each other. We finally got to Meru. It was hot. Uh, The equator made it hotter. Uh, Didn't change the traffic, which was very fast, a series of near misses. And then we turned down this rutted red dirt road into Ripples International, which is where the girls stay. The roadway was shaded by this canopy of beautiful trees that felt to me like they were offering us refuge from the heat of the equatorial sun. And on the sides of this driveway were hedges of purple azalea and yellow hibiscus. And and then I realized they were covering a, a fence. And I understood the fence was there to keep intruders away from this bucolic place that is a refuge for 160 little girls who were poised to cut off the head of the snake that is sexual assault. All of my senses were on full alert when we got to Ripples. The first child I was introduced to was Emily. She's 11. She's about four and a half feet tall. Her little shoulders weren't 11 inches apart. I mean, it was the size of the child that took my breath away. And I should tell you, I don't go around the world interviewing little kids who have been raped in order to get my story. I would never do that. This was a test case. There were lots of counselors and therapists around, and the girls had been told they had to say what happened to them in the court, the way it was. And, and by, by the time the, the case was through, they had changed that, by the way. But they told the girls I was coming, and the girls were to tell me if they wanted to their story. And Emily came straight up to me, and she wanted to tell me her story. I know she's such a little kid, but 11. You know how little 11-year-olds have husky voices? She sounded like Walter Cronkite, for God's sakes. And she sat down, and she was so determined to tell me what happened. She said, my grandfather asked me to fetch the torch, but when I brought it to him, it wasn't the torch he wanted. He took me by force. He warned me not to scream, or he would cut me up. Along with thousands and thousands of men in sub-Saharan Africa, Emily's grandfather has a demented view that having sex with a little girl will cure you of HIV-AIDS. And the smaller the child, they think the stronger the cure. But now, Emily is taking the old man to the high court. And even Emily knows, even Emily knows this is history in the making. Emily knows her older sister didn't do this, her mother didn't, her aunties didn't, her grandmother didn't. She knows that along with 159 other little kids, they could be strengthening the status of women and girls where they live. She said to me, these men will learn they cannot do this to small girls. I felt she was balancing the victim piece, which there's no doubt was there, with the empowerment she had with her decision to be part of a group of girls that was going to sue. But six days since she'd been raped when I met Emily, she was still complaining of stomach pain. She couldn't sleep. She said to me in her native Kiswahili, it hurts to go to the bathroom. And people tell me this is none of my business. This is cultural. This is not cultural. This is criminal. And not only am I talking about it, these little kids are talking about it. In Kenya, a child is raped every 30 minutes for this reason. And if she doesn't die of her injuries, she faces abandonment. Nobody wants anything to do with a child who's been in a shelter or a child who's been raped. But she most certainly loses her chance to go to school. It could be because it was the teacher who raped her. It could be because she has any one of a number of sexually transmitted diseases, urinary tract infections. Uh, It could be she's HIV positive already. The point is, without an education and with poor health and no means of financial support, the girl drifts into poverty. And I looked at these kids and I thought, Is this the poster of Africa we see, of these kids on their knees in need and emaciated? Is this one of the reasons? We know what to do about that reason. But you know, even if it's the father, the mother will say, don't tell, don't tell. 
If he goes to jail, we'll have nothing to eat. One of the workers at uh, Ripples International said to me, the problem is this is our African culture. Nobody wants to associate with someone who's in that kind of trouble. And, and I used her, uh, her next comment for a chapter in my book. She said, we need to stand up and say, the shame isn't ours, it's yours. And that's the difference today. The girls are now saying, the shame isn't mine, it's yours. You're the one who, who did this to me. But I have to tell you, when I visited... There were 11 girls in residence that day, and one of them was a 15-year-old girl called Lookaline, and she was 39 weeks pregnant. Her rapist had kept her, a man she knew well, and he kept her until she was pregnant. Then she got away. And I phoned back two weeks later from home, and, and she had delivered a little girl, and they were both fine. But I was fascinated with what Lookaline had to tell me, and I want to share it with you. She didn't talk like a victim. She talked like somebody wanted to get even. And she shook her fist when she said to me, this happened to me on May the 13th at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the year 2010. I will make sure this never happens to my sister. I asked her what she would do after the baby was born. Now remember, there's a test case. She said, they told me I can go back to school. They'll take care of the baby while I'm in classes. As I mentioned to you earlier, education is so important. I used to be a teacher. In fact, I used to be a phys ed teacher. That was my first career. I really loved doing that. And, and people said to me, what good is that as a journalist? Well, I can tell you, I spent a lot of time in places where rocket-propelled grenades are flying around, and I'm hiding in a broken building with 30 kids who are scared to death, and I know 300 games. So it has always been good for me to be a phys ed teacher. But the teacher part of it, you know, you wonder, right, what if they had a chance? What if you gave this kid a chance? What if she went to school? What if she learned to read and write? What if she could think for herself? What if she could tell those jerks to lay off? And, and I always wonder about that. And I ask the kids, wherever I am, what, what would you do? What would you do if you had that chance? And they say, oh, I wish I could be a doctor. I wish I could be a lawyer. One little girl, six years old in Afghanistan, said, I want to be the president of Afghanistan, which I thought was pretty great. But I said to Lookaline, what would you do? with an education. She didn't say, I wish, I want, maybe, if only. She said, oh, I'm going to be a poet. A poet, I thought. I don't even want my kids to be poets. She'll starve to death. And with that, she's sitting on a book. I'm recording this for CBC. She's sitting on a book. She pulls it out, and she says, would you like me to read you my poetry? I said, yes, and this is what I recorded. Here I come, walking down through history to eternity from paradise to the city of goods, victorious, glorious, serious and pious, elegant, full of grace and truth, the centerpiece and the masterpiece of literature, glowing, growing and flowing, here, there, everywhere, cheering millions every day, the book of books that I am. This from a teenager who's disadvantaged in every imaginable way, and yet she was preparing to sue her government for failing to protect her. That's how change happens. That's how sustainable change happens. It takes commitment and colossal personal strength for a girl to tackle the status quo and claim a better future for herself. I have to tell you a little sidebar. When that played on the CBC, the very next day, they got a call from a literature professor at the University of Saskatchewan. She heard it, and she said, I'll mentor that girl. Now, she had to go through 87 layers of, of security. But as you and I sit here tonight, Lookaline has a mentor. I think it's a very Canadian kind of a story. But you know, the journey these kids were on, and I have to say, following their story for three years, reporting it in the Globe and Mail, this is really one of the things that made me realize this book had to be written. Things were happening. They were happening everywhere I was going. And, but I'd been with these kids for so long. The journey they, they were on was about girls who dared to bust the taboo on speaking out about sexual assault. It was about lawyers, women lawyers from two sides of the world who came together to, to support these youngsters in their quest for justice. But it was about kids who were told they had no rights. You have no rights. You're just a kid. You're just a girl. And they thought, actually, we think we do have rights, and we're going to chase them down. But it was the pushback reaction I think every woman and man on the planet has been waiting for. Because everyone knew if they would win, the success was going to spill over onto all of the other girls. And there was a lot at stake. A piece I didn't tell you is if these kids ever dared to report the rape, the police would re-rape them. 
They had no soft landing. They had no place to go. Their parents said, shut up. The police re-raped them. I spoke to a, a judge in another country. He said, everyone's talking about this case. You know, if those kids win, this is going to create a hullabaloo of Shakespearean proportions. Well, you know what? When it comes to the rights of women and girls, there's nothing I like better than a hullabaloo of Shakespearean proportion. So the case went to court on October the 11th. It's now three years past. The, the lawyers, lawyers are not this dramatic usually, they decided they were going to march from the shelter to the high court in Meru. And the lawyer's supporters all came with them. Well, with that, the kids came tumbling out of the shelter. They wanted to walk with them. All of this is on video, thank God. And the lawyer said, no, you can't come with us. Go back, go back. You can't be identified. You're the victims. The kids said, nothing doing. We're marching with you. And they went down the road with the lawyers and their supporters, punching their little fists in the air, yelling, hakiyangu, hakiyangu, which means these are my rights. And they, they marched all the way to the, to the high court. Well, guess who guards the high court? The police. And <laughs> the police saw them coming. This was a hullabaloo of Shakespearean proportions. They saw them coming. They slammed the gate shut. Lawyers stopped in their tracks. The kids were up those gates in no time. And they were looking around, and then one of them started to laugh. And she called out to the others, look, look, the very men who humiliated us, the ones who hurt us, who made us ashamed, now they're scared of us. And the kids were all laughing. Finally, they came down. The gates opened, and the court case began. And on May the 27th, 2014, the judge made his decision, and those kids won. And when they won, they won it for 10 million girls in uh, Kenya. And, and word of it has spread. People are talking, and, and I, I won't go into the detail, but what happened was the, the will of those girls is altering the status of women and girls. Not today, fully, but huge things are happening. And I felt, as I finished the story, I thought once in a very long while, maybe a lifetime, you get to tell a story that alters the way an entire country, maybe the world, sees itself. And I realized that the process of change is usually daring, certainly time-consuming, invariably costly, occasionally heartbreaking, but eventually an exercise so rewarding, it is the stuff of legends. And those women and girls in that story were all of that and something more than its sum. You know, it was Malala who said at the United Nations, they thought a bullet would silence us, but they failed. Out of the silence came a voice. Weakness and fear and hopelessness died. Strength, power, and courage were born. And then she said one child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. Talk about out of the mouths of babes. As I said, we're not at the finish line, not here and not there, but we have momentum today like we never had before. Thank you. Thank you. Questions? Thank you. Thank you for your words. It's very inspiring. I was wondering, you were talking about this as a personal issue, that these young women rose to some epiphany of understanding of what they deserve, really. But I was curious about these young children, like met by families that completely discard them, political organizations, police. Like, did they tell you? How they suddenly realize they deserve more and they want to How did the together. children realize yeah. they were safe Yeah, to you were talking. No, I mean, in their life when they were telling you how they understood all of a sudden that they have worth. Did they tell you how they came to that understanding at how all? They, how, oh. Yeah. Um, no, they didn't. Um, well, I'll tell you the truth. I was teaching them how to play soccer. That's how I really got to know them. And they wanted to tell their stories. But you know, children have, and I'm not a psychologist, so I, I probably am getting into areas I have no business being in, but children have enormous capacity to, to accept and to, and to forgive and to move on. Children want to be happy. They want things to be better. By the time you get to my age, you might linger with a bit of anger and, and regret. Maybe not regret, but I'd like to get even maybe. But these children, I was very taken by their their willingness to move forward. They understood what happened to them was wrong. They, they, it was very important to them that they win. You know what? One of the things they did, they had to raise money for the next stage of this, which is the retraining of the... Oh, I should tell you this part. So in Canada, in 1982, 
uh, an NDP member of Parliament from Vancouver went into the House and said, in, in our country we have, we have terrible things happening and we have to reform our laws around sexual assault. We need a change because we've got wife assault, we've got child abuse, we've got incest, we've got all these things going on, we have to change it. And those of you who are old enough to remember, the members of Parliament laughed. And they called to each other across the house, hey, Jack, you beat Shirley? Ha, ha, ha. Nobody would dare talk that way in this country today. One year later, in 1983, they did reform. They went in and they reformed. But once you reform the judiciary, you have to educate the public, build awareness, and retrain the judges, the lawyers, the police, everybody to do with the judiciary. They had to do that in Meru. So how are they going to do that? That was going to take more money. And it was going to take trainers. So what I want to share with you, it's a little bit off your question, but guess who trained them? The retired sexual assault team in the Vancouver Police Force. They all ganged up together and they went over there. In fact, one of the Kenyan police said to me that one of the women on the force is six feet tall. She's as tall as I am and she wears four-inch heels. And he said, I knew that woman was a cop. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, were, they did this marvelous job, but then they had to raise money to do more, and, and they had a marathon run, and you know how great the runners are in Kenya, and, and all these terrific, well-known marathoners came, and these kids have so much, such an improved sense of self-worth, they wanted to run with them. I thought, what? They're, they're like Olympians. Cheer for them. No, they ran with them, and then when they were presenting the medals, the kids stood up with them on the stage, they're going, we're number one, we're number... What happened was the children understood they'd been wronged, and now things could be right. They're not there yet. I mean, there are still terrible things happening in Meru. But I, I didn't ask them how they came to their sense of self-worth. Oh, another question. Hi, uh, my name's Adam. I'm also here with um, the UNACTO as uh, a volunteer group. I just wanted to say how much I appreciated that talk. It was really insightful to see how you're able to turn your travels into something that spreads a message. And as you talked about uh, the role of technological evolution and how that has somehow kind of gotten rid of the tension between, you know, imperialism versus feminism and kind of universality, like bringing it all together. <laughs> could we you, could it, well, in terms of like, that's what you said, like Facebook was the, the connecting well, thread, Well, Facebook right? was the connector. And uh, I was wondering if uh, you could kind of elaborate more on the actual process in which Facebook itself or social media itself has kind of gone through those barriers, like with just uh, what platforms you've seen within that platform. You know, if you never, if you lived in a world that didn't have the internet, imagine what you didn't know. I remember in the early days in Afghanistan, after the Taliban were overthrown, when the Taliban were there, they were literally impaling TVs and radios on lampposts and everything was forbidden. One of the girls said to me, the BBC radio has become more important than bread. But it was October the 7th, 2001, that the international community led by the Americans came in and knocked off the Taliban. And the, the amazing thing that happened right then was people started to find out the rest of the world doesn't live like we live. Why do we live like this? It's easy for the Taliban to tell you that a woman who dresses like a soldier is a whore. But if she comes to your town and builds a bridge with a bunch of men, but this happened and they saw people from all over the world coming to them. And the next thing you knew, everybody had cell phones and then everybody had TV and Facebook. And you can go on Facebook and you can see how someone in California lives. Maybe that's not such a good thing. But you can find out and, and really... I mean, the people who understand change a lot better than I do would say to you that, that the first piece of change is, is it okay for us to do that? And, and the second piece is, if we do that, who do we become? How do we change who we are? And after that, the rest of it rolls out. Then you, you make your decision and you do all the long, hard slugging to make the change. But those are very difficult. So these people, you're talking about the internet, they're looking at things they've never seen before, and they're saying, and they're saying to me, we don't live like that. Why don't we live like that? And they weren't talking about your life is better than mine. It was just so hugely different, and, and it wasn't about bad people. So 
the Internet does all of that. It does some very bad things, too. There's all kinds of misinformation on the Internet. There's all kinds of squabbling and, and unfairness, and I, I think that is a problem someone's going to have to deal with. But it, it opened all of us up, not just the women of Afghanistan or even the women of Congo, where I was reporting, but for you and I. I mean, how many times you Google, you know, what's the currency in Poland, you know? Uh, it opened up the world. You talk about the professor at Rutgers and elsewhere and, you know, having lived a journalist's life as well and listening to you speak, is there anything left for academics to do in this dialogue? Because they seem to have been so marginalized. Marginalized? Well, in the sense that they're not at the forefront of the kind of change that you're identifying. Well, where is that young girl I was speaking to? Jessie. How could I forget? I love that name. So Jessie's doing a PhD, and, and we were speaking earlier and she's doing something I don't think anyone else is doing. You're going to walk through this one. Because it's time somebody, an academic, said, why isn't it working? Look at the things we do. Look at the money we've spent. Look at the places we've gone and the things we've brought and the changes we've introduced. So why isn't it better? Are there fewer people in the world hungry today? Are there, is their health better? I don't know. I don't think so. Not the wars I cover. So academics need to take, someone has to do that and say, what works? Are we stuck with an old model? Are, are we so afraid to change our model because we're going to insult somebody or we're going to, God forbid, say what we did before didn't work? It's time like-minded people, like, maybe that's what you'll do when you graduate. You won't be able to find a job, so you might as well do this. <laughs> you gather people and get like-minded people to sit down and say, what's going on? What can we do? What's different here? And just brainstorm it, because I don't think academics are doing that. We're not doing it either. <laughs> On that note, please join me in thanking Sally Armstrong for a fantastic talk. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Spur Radio. The LRC presents Girl Power, the rising economic tide of women featuring Sally Armstrong, recorded live at Hart House at the University of Toronto. The publisher of the Literary Review of Canada is Helen Walsh. The programming producer for the 2015-2016 series of LRC Presents was Harrison Lohman. The editor-in-chief of the LRC is Sarmishta Subramanian, and the managing editor is Michael Stevens. This podcast was recorded, edited, and hosted by me, Michael Booth, director of production for the Spur Festival. Stay tuned to Spur Radio for more great content from Spur Festivals and the LRC. Please follow Spur on Twitter, at SpurFest, and the LRC, at LRCMag. Visit our website, spurfestival.ca and reviewcanada.ca, for information on upcoming festivals and events, and to subscribe to the LRC and show your support for our national conversations. Thank you for listening.